0: On today's show, our guest is Dr. Jeremy Robinson. Have you ever had the rug pulled out from under your feet? Suddenly life throws you a curveball like you never expected. Most of us have, and it's how we choose to react to these events that really defines us as people. Choosing to get angry, to get revenge, to move on, or to wallow in a pity party are all options that each and every one of us have felt at some point, especially when things go sideways in life. Jeremy's life was unfolding according to plan. His job, his lifestyle, his professional development, they were all tracking perfectly towards the destination he was choosing. And one day, it was all over. As quickly as I read that sentence, his career was over with an unfavorable medical diagnosis. But Jeremy's not a quitter, as you'll hear. And despite the pain of having to leave a career behind that he loved, he moved forward and he fully embraced the next chapter of his life. This is an inspirational go-all-in story that will get you thinking and asking yourself, how can you do more with your life? And as you listen into this story, I want you to ask yourself, are you truly living up to your potential or are you just coasting along in your life? I'm excited he's here, so please help me in welcoming Dr. Jeremy Robinson. Hey, are you totally committed? Are you playing full out? Are you all in? Hi, my name is Robert Brass, and this is the Go All In Podcast. Join me as we explore amazing stories of success, heartache, and absolute triumph by those who have gone all in. I'm glad you're here, so let's get to it and do whatever it takes to go all in and create the life of your dreams. Well, good day, Jeremy. Welcome to the Go All In Podcast, mate. It's great to have you on the show.
1: G'day, Robert. Lovely to be here.
0: All right. Well, I like to start off all of my shows with a quick little get-to-know-you quiz. It helps warm us up, calms us down a little bit, and maybe your friends and family and the people listening in will learn something about you that they don't already know. It's pretty random, in no particular order. A little bit of fun to kick it off. Just tell me the first thing that comes to mind. You ready? Ready. You sure? That sounded like very definitive.
1: That was the pilot answer. Yeah, just reading back what you've told me. I'm ready. I <laughs> oh, mean, you prefer the beach or the bush? Beach. Vegan or paleo? Uh, whatever's put in front of me.
0: That says the carnivore.
1: <laughs> I really am. I'll eat anything. Uh, cardio or weights? Uh, neither. Uh, <laughs> exercise is not my thing. <laughs> really? <laughs> no.
0: Really, you're not into it? Yeah,
1: exercise has to be disguised as a fun activity. So... Sport? Surfing surfing and yoga are really the only two I own a bit of rock climbing they are really the only things that I've ever gotten into. You never, uh,
0: never played sport as a kid you never fussed with exercise like that?
1: Uh, yeah I played, played team sport at school because you had to um, and a bit at university but as soon as I was out in the wide world and left to my own devices no, it, all, it all just disappeared and I've, yeah I've never had a gym membership yeah not really a gym person.
0: Really we've got to fix that man.
1: Yeah, maybe, maybe.
0: Missing, <laughs> good.
1: No, if I could just live a bit close to the beach and go surfing every day again, I'd be very happy.
0: Yeah, well, that's that's a good second prize, man. I like that a lot. Tell me, what was your uh, what was your first car?
1: My first car was an MG eleven hundred.
0: Man, that's a pretty cool first car.
1: Yeah, well, it wasn't my car, I guess, but it was the first car that I drove regularly. My father loves old British cars and was always in the process of doing up. Uh, and old usually mgs Uh, so i think as it was approaching time for me to learn to drive i think i was about 13 when he bought it i remember it coming home it was just a rusted shell with a whole bunch of cardboard boxes of bits and we spent years you know sanding the body and repainting it and putting it all back together and And you're from uh,
0: canberra right driving around in in an mg in the freezing cold of winter with a crappy old heater in an old car like that that must have been well, well
1: I this like... this car was a giant step forward because it actually had a roof, whereas the <laughs> car that I used to get driven to school in as a little kid was an NGTF, uh, which is a you know, little two-seat open yeah. open sports car. And, yes, in the middle of winter in Canberra, that was freezing. They're little, those cars as well. They're like yeah. little toys. Yeah, yeah, they're quite fun, little go-karts.
0: And what happened to it? Where is it now?
1: Well, it's uh, funny you should say it's just been sold after – you know, 20-something years in the family, and I think uh, at least two rebuilds. Um, both of my sisters have pranged it. I'm proud to say that I never pranked it, uh, <laughs> although I went very close. And, yeah, my father, it's, uh, yeah, it's like granddad's hammer, you know, three heads, three new handles, but it's the same car. And, uh, yeah, it's just been sold to a proud new owner.
0: Very nice, very nice. All right, some aviation ones. Tell me, mate, do you prefer flying in the bush, or do you prefer the airline flying?
1: Oh, they both have such different challenges. But um, if I'm out by myself, a bit of bush flying is great fun.
0: Yeah, you prefer the dirt strip or a paved runway?
1: Yeah, dirt strip. You know, it's the, the challenge, I guess, of getting something right that's a little bit tricky. Nice one.
0: 747 or 767? Which one's the
1: oh, they're so They're such different aeroplanes. Um, I'm making I'd you have to say the 7. Your favorite I'd hand, have, right? That's exactly right. I'd have to say the 767 for me because it was the first the first heavy jet that I flew from from one of the window seats. So, yeah, it holds a special place in my heart. Very nice, very nice.
0: Can you fly a tail dragger?
1: I can. Yeah? What What
0: was your first tail dragger that you flew?
1: Uh, the first tail dragger that I flew, I think, was an ultralight called a drifter, which yeah. is very much like flying a motorbike. It's just fantastic fun.
0: <laughs> and and what about dancing on those rudder pedals? Is that something you've still got that skill? Have you flown a tail dragger recently? Or uh...
1: no? I think I last flew a tail dragger on my birthday last year. So that's pretty recent 14, 14 months ago. And that was a cap 10 down at Wollongong. I'd never flown a cap 10 before. So I was really interested to see how it went. And um, I think I was a little bit rusty to begin with a little bit too stiff on the controls, especially the rudders, but uh, yeah, it came back.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, is that something that stays with you? Like riding a bike? I can't fly a tail dragger. I don't have an endorsement, but I, I always wondered if you, you learn to do that and then you go back to it a couple of years later, you still got it.
1: Yeah, I think it comes back. You know, I'm not an experienced tail dragger pilot by any means. You know, my 50 odd hours are spread over the last decade. So I'm always uh, relearning how to do it, but yeah, the, the basic skills are in there. They just take a bit of, uh, yeah, a bit of practice to get back up to speed. Yeah, it's like
0: anything, isn't it? It's, not, it's a skill that decays, but it's one that you can get back quickly once you've learned how to do it. It's a, that's a cool yeah, thing. Yeah. Tell me, Jeremy, who who was or who is your biggest influence in aviation?
1: I would have to list my chief flying instructor and then chief pilot when I was employed as an instructor. A gentleman by the name of Greg Klinick. He was uh, you know, an ex-military pilot and a very experienced Pilot with a variety of uh, flying background, and he was just a, a very powerful but also very calm uh, influence on on almost all of my flying training. You know, he was he oversaw my training from my CPL all the way through to multi-engined instrument rating and, and instructor rating, and yeah, he had a huge, a huge influence on that.
0: Did he make it seem achievable for
1: you? I guess he did. I mean, there was never there were never any barriers put in. Put in place to my training, and he was very supportive all the way through. If any, he was, and he was like that to everyone. If anyone had problems or hiccups in their training, yeah, you know, he was pretty direct in the way he communicated, yeah, you know, where you'd gone wrong. But he was also very supportive in overcoming those those shortcomings. I guess
0: very nice. And you still mates with him now?
1: Yeah, I haven't seen him for a few months now, but uh, I caught up with him out at Bankstown sometime in the last six months. Hmm.
0: Very nice. Very nice. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing all that with us. Little uh, way to start off the show. Will people come on over to the go all in podcast to learn more about others that have gone all in. So if you could, Jeremy, could you please share with us your biggest go all in story or stories and the lessons that you've learned from your commitment to success?
1: Oh, I guess the, the biggest go all in is, is going back to university as a mature age student and attempting a medical degree and, I don't know how much background you want about the uh, you know, the events that led up to that decision being made. But certainly going back, starting a, a degree that was at 90 degrees to any other professional you know, training that I'd ever been involved in before and attempting to get through that at the same time getting married and having young children. Maybe, maybe you could
0: take the listeners back from the latter part of your career because you were an aviator, you're a pilot and you had a airline career that was progressing really well for you. And then one day I'll
1: let you pick it up. Yeah. One day it all fell over. Yes, that's right. I was, i have been flying for Qantas for nine years and uh, I was the first officer on the Boeing 767. So flying all of the domestic trunk routes in Australia and a lot of the Southeast Asia and Pacific international routes. And in early 2010 I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes which you know, invalidates your class 1 aviation medical on the spot so my yeah my professional flying career ground to a very abrupt halt and um, I need to figure out what to do with my life so yeah much soul-searching and uh, and thinking and I came to the conclusion that a career in medicine would keep me occupied and keep me professionally satisfied and it was certainly uh, certainly felt like I was biting off more than I can chew when I got into it but that age-old advice you know when setting out to eat an elephant take small mouthfuls and chew chew carefully I did I just approached it a day at a time and you know broke it down into small hurdles and just kept working at it.
0: Nice nice well before we go down all the way down that path there I just want to back up a little bit and, and ask you about the transition because transitions are difficult and something that everybody experiences in life whether that's transitioning from a relationship a good bad indifferent people transition in and out of relationships all the time and out of jobs as well and i know for me personally as a guy and maybe the men that are listening to this can relate to this maybe a little bit more than the women but guys tend to define themselves and define their personality a lot by what they do for a job i know for me being able to say that i was a paratrooper was a pretty cool job title. And I love saying that. And I love, you know, there's no such thing as an ex soldier. And I'm still a paratrooper and I'm a paratrooper at heart and I will be to the day I die. Uh, but I really did define myself by my military career. And when I, when that finally came to an end, and that was by my choosing, it took me a long time to transition out of that mindset and to be not defined by running around with a gun and kicking indoors anymore. Did the same thing happen to you or did you, because you're kind of forced. To make a transition there because of a medical problem but you, that doesn't really change anything because you're still defining yourself by what you do how was that for you
1: that was definitely one of the many challenges yeah I've always identified very strongly with the professional persona of, a, of an aviator so to suddenly not be a professional aviator uh, was very very difficult and um, I think I just had so much else going on because, you know, talking about transitions, yes, my professional life was in an enormous state of flux, but at the same time, I was getting married. So my personal life was in a state of transition and we had our first child within, uh, you know, 18 months of getting married. So that is another enormous transition. So when, well, and leaving the airline job, you know, my financial state was also in an enormous transition. So that there, there pretty much wasn't any, part of my life that wasn't undergoing change at that time. So whilst losing my identity as a professional pilot was a problem, it probably wasn't at the top of the list of things I was dealing with. And I think by the time I came to starting to deal with it, i had managed to get my ultralight license back. And I was working as an ultralight instructor on a, you know, a very casual basis, just volunteering for a, a local club. But that just gave me that little... That little bit of professional aviation satisfaction, being able to pass on all that knowledge that i would accrued over the years to other budding aviators. So I think I managed to. you
0: weren't flying a heavy jet; you just uh, mad that you're flying.
1: You know, it's just yeah. I've I've always been interested in how different aeroplanes fly, and I've always flown a bunch of different aeroplanes. Even when I was at Qantas, I was working as an ultralight instructor in my spare time. So. So I think it it didn't matter that I was not flying the heavy jets and I just tried to look at the positives. So the positives were I wasn't living at the end of a computer generated roster that I had very little input into (laughs) Uh, having a wife and a young child. I was now at home every night uh, rather than being away for, you know, three to seven days at a time. So those were the positives that I tried to focus on there. And yeah, that little, that little glimmer of professional Aviation remained and uh, I guess that's what kept me going in that sense.
0: Really, really nice way that you describe it there with your wife and your kid as well, you know, because that's something that is way more important than your professional development and your career and all of those sorts of things. I know for me, when I left the military, the thing that I, I missed the most being in the infantry is, a, is hard. Yeah, it's it's a hard life. It's a regimental life. It's it's very physical. But my last posting was at the parachute school, um, so skydiving a couple of times a day for weeks at a time when jump serials are on, and when the jump serials are not on, you're kind of left to your own devices to go and train and do whatever you want. A lot of my mates went across to special forces because we had so much time to train. They got their fitness up and and off they went. So it was a really fabulous last place to be posted. And leaving from there was kind of, I don't know if it was a good idea because the job was so cushy and I probably could have stayed there for another two years if I wanted to. And I found out when I left that I, I, I not only miss my friends and the, and the camaraderie that you have from being in a close working environment like that, but I actually miss the job as well. I missed going skydiving constantly and getting paid by the government to go skydive and you're jumping out of raft planes and, oh my god it doesn't get any better than that in the military i get to do all the special forces stuff without having to do any of the special forces stuff you get the, the cream on top if you like was there something about aviation and airline and airliners that you particularly missed or was it you know there's always some little nuance there that you go man i wish i could get a hold of that thing and get down the ILS and the crosswind in a 747? I don't know. What is
1: it? Yeah, there were probably two big aspects of the career that I missed. One was, you know, there had never been a day where I didn't look out the window from the flight deck and say, look, isn't this amazing? This is a, this is such a fantastic job. <laughs> and, yeah, you know, I've, I've always enjoyed flying. So the, the ability to be airborne on a regular basis and experience being up at altitude and, you know, the sunsets and the sunrises and the things that you see, I just missed that experience. From a professional satisfaction point of view, I definitely missed operating a complex machine in a in a very dynamic environment. Uh, you know, multi-crew heavy jet operations, I've always found very, very professionally satisfying. So I definitely missed that. And from a personal point of view, yeah, as you're saying, the camaraderie, especially on the 767, that was a fairly tight hit bunch of pilots. And... There was always a good a good social scene, so you'd meet up with other pilots when you were in slip ports, and yeah, I missed that camaraderie a lot. And yeah, being not being part of the the Qantas family as such it was a very strange experience. The day that I left, you know, handing in my uniform, handing in my ID card, and just walking out the front of the headquarters building, and turning around and looking at it and people are walking in and walking out like nothing's changed. And, you know, for 99.9% of the people working there, nothing had changed. But for me, suddenly I was on the outside and I couldn't get back in. And yeah, that was a very odd feeling.
0: Mm -hmm. i think the same thing happened to me i kind of i left and i i remember leaving transitioning from the military takes a while for like three i think from memory it was like three or four months or something like that so you have a long time to prepare it's not a long time but when you're kind of waiting for something it seems like forever and i remember driving out the front gate thinking oh thank god but then there's the there's a move required. I had to move from where we were in Nara back to Sydney and there's all the admin to do. And by the time all the admin settled down, I was like, oh, oh. And and their lives were still going on and, and my life was like stopped. It's supposed to move <laughs> forward, but it stopped. Yeah. How long yeah. did it take you to move forward from when it stopped?
1: Oh. Probably almost a year, I think. Um, The, the two constants in my life through that entire period of change were, you know, my wife and family and, and a master's degree that I was doing one subject a semester. And that just, yeah, that gave me something to do to keep my brain ticking over, uh, that, yeah, that wasn't involved in, you know, a new diagnosis of diabetes or reshuffling my finances or applying for insurance or um, those kind of things. So, so that was the one constant, but, there was a six-month period there between getting diagnosed and leaving Qantas where I was just, I guess, just organising all of the yeah, the life admin involved in such a giant change. And then there was another six- to nine-month period where I was finishing off that master's and thinking solidly about what to do next and then getting the ball rolling for you know, how to take that next step professionally, which was the medical degree. And, that, and when you um, go to
0: study medicine, that's a mm-hmm. full-time degree. You can't do that one- subject you're all in baby
1: yeah that's it and uh, for me you know it had been 13 years since i had done full-time study and the application process is quite involved for medicine so there's a you know there's a large entrance exam that you have to sit first and then there's interviews and and then you start uni and the lead time on that is you know kind of 12 to 18 months
0: gosh long time
1: Um, So actually, because a lot of the subjects involved, I hadn't studied since high school, you know, biology and chemistry. I did a a preparation course for the entrance exam. So I was studying towards the end of 2010, the summer of 2010, 2011 for the entrance exam that I think was in March or April of 2011, and then preparing for interviews that were in August of 2011 to then finally start medicine at the start of 2012. So there, there was a fair bit of lead time involved.
0: What's the hardest part about studying medicine?
1: The volume of information. You know, Every dot point in every lecture, someone's done a PhD on. So it's just a bottomless pit of knowledge. You could, you could continuously learn more and more information about everything there is to do with medicine and you would still never know it all. So learning, learning where to draw a line in the sand and say, that is enough knowledge for what I need to be doing now whether that's passing this end of semester exam or when you're out and working, you know, I'm working in this field of medicine. So I need to know this much about this body system or this treatment regime and, uh, and being comfortable knowing that you don't know a large amount of medicine. Uh, I think that's, that's the biggest challenge.
0: Are, are you studying when you're at university to pass the exams? Because you've got to assimilate that knowledge and learn it at the same time. But then there's the pressure of exams and getting through the course and getting a qualification there's a kind of like a dichotomy between those things, isn't there, where you really do need to know that stuff, but you really need to pass the exams. And how much do I, how do you, how did you decide where to draw that line?
1: Yeah, there's definitely an element of both. I think the course that I did, certainly the assessments provided you with the core knowledge needed. So if you passed the assessments, you had attained the, you know, the, the, a good solid foundation of knowledge, but there was definitely an element of studying for the exams as well. So, you know, to study things that I probably never use again, but they gave you more marks in the exam. So the, I've just lost my train of thought where I was going with that. (laughs) So I guess what dictated how much I studied was not attaining a certain level of knowledge, but it was figuring out what the balance between my study life and my personal life was. Mm. Uh, So for me, having, you know, a wife and a young child and then later in the degree, a second young child. Uh, my home life was significantly different to the majority of the other students. Yeah, so I just, I had the time that was available to study and I studied in that time and that gave me a certain mark. And uh, if I studied more than that, I would obtain a better mark, but my home life would suffer, you know, more than it already was. So for me, that was what limited my um, yeah, the volume of study that I completed.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's a really practical way of describing it and doing that. What did you learn along the way about yourself? There must, that must be because nobody's born as a doctor or as a pilot or as a paratrooper. You kind of grow into a role. Did it take you some time to develop into that and get a little bit of momentum behind you? When was it?
1: Yeah, I think that's something that I'm still doing. You know, I'm, I'm early on in my doctor career. I'm yet to complete any specialty training. So there's definitely more, you know, doctor persona and doctor role that, that will be formalised as I, as I progress in my career. But things that I learned about myself going through the training was very quickly I learned what my learning style was. And I think having studied you know, everything to do with aeroplanes and aviation, I would never really had to think about what my learning style was because the type of information that's presented suited what my learning style was, you know, and that fed back on itself. The things that I liked were the things that I was good at were the things that I liked and so on. But medicine being so broad and so many of the concepts are not presented in the same way as things that I previously studied, I had to figure out ways to retain that information, you know, without people providing it to me in a, a format that already suited the way my brain learnt. And it took me, probably took me a good six to 12 months to recognise that my brain just works in pictures and dot points, you know, text doesn't really work. And and this is highlighted beautifully by a friend of mine when we were studying for our anatomy exams. Anatomy, I always uh, found quite, you know, came quite easily to my brain because it's three-dimensional. It's how three-dimensional objects fit in and interrelate So I never had too much problem, too much trouble learning and retaining anatomy because I could just picture it in my mind. Uh, This friend of mine had a previous career as a lawyer before starting medicine and she was... Because
0: it was just words.
1: That's right. So she said, oh, look, can we exchange notes just to see if there's anything that you're doing that can help me? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And I'm always interested to see how other people are studying, see if I can learn more. So my anatomy summary notes were just pages and pages of color pictures with the occasional word. <laughs> sent that to her. She sent me her anatomy notes, which were pages and pages and pages of black and white dot points and text with no pictures in there at all. <laughs> and I, I didn't even progress beyond the first paragraph, to be honest. I just, yeah. there's no way that my brain could have read and retained that information and then recalled it in that format. It's a so very, yeah.
0: very interesting, interesting way to do it. What about, Here's a funny one, you know, as I guess as an infantry soldier and particularly as a paratrooper, um, I saw a lot of injuries, yeah, people just get hurt, but I was always pretty squeamish about it and never very good at, I don't know, I just, no matter no matter what, um, you, you think that an infantry soldier would be less squeamish about stuff because of what you're required to do for a job, but I was always pretty squeamish about it, and particularly when people got hurt, you know, busted ankles, broken legs, like hurt badly, <clears throat> everybody's squeamish about stuff. How, how do you become less squeamish as a doctor? They're like, steel minds. i have just seen you guys like, how do you progress? No, well,
1: everyone's different. And there were certainly people in my year who really struggled the anatomy labs because you're dealing with cadavers and usually dissected cadavers. So they would be dissected in a certain way to highlight a certain body system. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you'd have one that would show a certain muscle group or one that would show a certain, set of nerves or veins or arteries or something. And some of those were very confronting. You know, when you're dealing with the, the nervous system in the the neck and the face to have a, an actual human's head there with half of it still intact and the other half dissected away to various levels mm-hmm. and to know that, you know, this until recently, this was a, a living person that had very generously donated their body to, to further medical education. Um, and yeah, that, that is very confronting. And, I remember going in and seeing. I had two events where I had to say that I need to go and sit down and put my head between my knees, otherwise I'm going to faint. And one of those was uh, watching my first autopsy, and the second one of those was actually just watching a knee arthroscopy, arthroscopy, uh, which is you know probably one of the least <laughs> camera in gut. Cool. Yeah, that's right. Little little incision, little uh, little camera poked in, you know, jiggling it around to have a look inside the knee. My knee. And,
0: <laughs> and
1: for me, what, I, what it came down to was it was the the emotional response behind what was happening. So what caused me to, you know, progress close to the point of fainting with the knee arthroscopy was just how forceful the surgeon was with what he was doing to get, you know, the, the pictures that he needed to see. And me thinking about that as if that was happening to me without any anesthesia, you know, the pain involved would just be yeah. incredible. Okay. And similarly with the, with the autopsy, it was the emotional response of, you know, looking at this person who, who'd come to an untimely end and watching the very matter of fact way that the, um, the pathologist was just taking their body apart. And I found both of them yeah, very emotionally difficult. And I went away and thought about that and. Realized that, uh, you know, I need to reframe that in my brain. If that's my, the way my brain is going to naturally respond to these situations, I need to be able to retrain my brain to, to, to respond in a different way. And, you know, I thought, well, all of, both of those things we're doing to try and help the person, you know, with the, with the autopsy, we're trying to find out what the cause of death was. And that gives some closure to the relatives. Um, with the knee arthroscopy, uh, you know, we're looking to remove damaged tissue that will hopefully reduce the pain for this person in the future. And then with other operations that I went on to watch and participate in, it was the same thing. You know, this if this was happening, happening without anaesthesia, this, this would be catastrophically painful. That's right. And I wouldn't be able to cope with watching it. But I know that the patient is anaesthetised and is comfortable and that whatever procedure we're doing is going to help this person in the long run. And just reframing that in my brain... That that emotional response disappeared completely, and you know I've participated in a, a huge number of orthopedic operations, which are probably some of the most brutal operations you'll ever witness, uh, and I've assisted delivering uh, numerous babies through cesarean sections, which are also uh, fairly gory operations to the, the untrained, and I've never had a problem since. So it was, yeah, it was just that mental reframing that uh, that got me to deal with that.
0: Did you have some people around you helping you through that say, and telling you to do that? Or was that something you kind of discovered yourself?
1: No, that was just something I, I thought of myself, I guess. I hadn't, really, I hadn't really bounced any ideas off anyone about it. Um, I don't know when I came up with it, but it, uh, I guess it's just a process of self-reflection and, and thinking. Because obviously this was a hurdle that needed to be overcome fairly early in my medical training. Otherwise I wasn't going to progress at all in this career. So um,
0: That's the reason I asked because like every time I saw an injury as a soldier, I was kind of like, and I, I never really got over it. Um, mm. but, I, but I never, I kind of never analyzed it like you're describing. And I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be a doctor. I'm just like looking at people going, man, I'm glad that's not me. His ankle's around the wrong way or he's got a broken yeah. leg or like okay. serious, serious injuries. And, I guess because I'd never had an injury like that as well, and seeing other people like that in pain. What, what, what about that? When you do see them, then it's one thing that where well, they're lying flat, ironed out. But there's another thing when they come in the ER and their people are in pain and they're suffering and they're hurting. That did that take a lot to get over as well from an emotional perspective?
1: Not really. Um, I never had any problem from that point of view because yeah, we have the tools available straight away to start to helping uh, people. improving people's pain levels. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no I haven't haven't really struggled working in the emergency department from that point of view.
0: Really it takes a very certain certain sort of person to do like I'm squeamish about that when you say that I'm just like there's no way I could do that. But I guess with training and with the right mindset you can learn to do virtually anything like yeah, that. Yeah,
1: that's right. The right mindset and repeated exposure it just does become very normal. You know, I did a pilot exam medical examination the other day. And, you know, the pilots are required to provide a urine sample that you know, I have to do a, a dipstick test on. And uh, this chap was you know, holding his urine cup towards me, you know, at arm's length and trying not to look at it. And <laughs> hey, I don't know how you do this. And I was just thinking, this is probably the most benign thing that I do as a doctor. It's dipping my little test strip in a little cup of urine. It's uh, of <laughs> just yeah, It's just completely those kind of things that are so unusual to people outside of the medical world just become totally normal
0: mm-hmm.
1: to to doctors. And it's the same in the pilot world. You know, it's they're both industries and professional practices that are very unique and very different to, to most ordinary jobs. And so you do things that are, yeah, are incredible, but they just become normal to you because you're doing them all the time. Well, I'm going to
0: ask a loaded and a fairly natural question, I think, that the people listening uh-huh. in would ask. What do you prefer? Do you prefer being a pilot or do you prefer being a doctor? Because it sounds like you love both of them.
1: Yes, that's right. I mean, I I have to say, if I hadn't lost my medical, there is almost no chance that I would have woken up at age 31 and gone, no, I'm going to leave my flying job and change careers and become a doctor. Yeah. Uh, I definitely followed that path because I had to. And yeah, flying was my first love, you know, and, and always will be. So I think, uh, and you can probably see from the, you know, the mix of professional activities I'm involved in now, I'm always going to incorporate some flying into my professional life. Well, so, tell
0: us a little bit about that. Cause that's kind of cool what you get to do now, right? So you work in an ER at the moment, but you also do the aviation medicals on behalf of other people. Tell us a little bit about your business and, and what you do and how you help, how you help aviators.
1: Well, so I'm just a little one-man band. Uh, you know, I, I rent a room at one of the GP practices in the, the Land Cove shops near where I live, and uh, I just do the medical examinations that pilots require to maintain their licence. So for a private pilot, that's once every two to four years. For a, a, a commercial pilot, that's once every year or every six months above a certain age. And I love it because it's such a wonderful combination of all my skills and experiences, uh, you know, to be able to... Describe to pilots why certain medical things are required, why certain medical conditions are restrictive to, to explain what, you know, the aviation medicine department of CASA is trying to get at when they're asking questions that seem nonsensical to pilots. But also on the other side, being able to, you know, understand what a pilot needs, what his operational requirements are you know, inside the type of flying that they're doing and be able to, uh, I guess, frame that in the reports that I write for CASA, um, you know, just to try and give the pilot the best chance possible of them maintaining their medical, if they do have uh, a medical issue. So yeah, it's, it's interesting and varied work. You know, no two people are the same and no two pilots are the same. They all come to flying with a a different range of backgrounds and a different array of medical problems. So yeah, I'm, I'm very much enjoying that. And the way that I've managed to work some flying into that is that uh, I fly myself out to Tamora and Cowra once a month to act as the aviation medical examiner for those towns. Uh, both those towns have a, a decent-sized pilot population, uh, but both have uh, recently lost their local aviation medical examiner. And you so get to
0: fly what out there?
1: Uh, I rent a Cirrus sr 22 for the day. Nice. Uh, again, having the airline flying background you know being able to hire something that has a glass cockpit and an autopilot i can (laughs) sit there and pretend i'm an airline pilot again for for the 60 minutes it takes me to get out to tomorrow
0: you not find the tail dragger out there
1: no no
0: slow boat to china that one
1: (laughs) well it's not only that it's um you know a tail dragger again because i'm not totally i'm I'm not wonderfully experienced i'm not recent the tail dragger is definitely a, a light winds and sunny day machine for me (laughs) because I'm going out for work I want the best chance possible of getting there so there's a few days where I've flown out in pretty terrible weather uh, you know right on the limits of what I'm comfortable doing as a single pilot IFR you know operation and if I was a single pilot, IFR a tail dragger pilot, I don't, I don't know if I'd be doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, and
0: and you're still intimately connected to aviation, still flying as a volunteer instructor with recreational aviation as well, and you're a jump pilot as well, flying around in Cessna Caravan as well. Yep, there's yep. Stuff going on still for you. It's awesome.
1: Yeah, it's. Uh, I guess, like I said, it's my first love, and uh, again, having always been fascinated in how different airplanes fly. The opportunity now to fly three or four different aeroplanes on a regular basis, uh, yeah, I, I find that a professional challenge and professionally rewarding when I do get it right occasionally. So, I yeah, really love how
0: the how your story, your airline career ends, and it kind of takes a real dip and it goes a bit dark, and then we we fight back to get your medical degree, and then you're kind of back to where you love, You know, things work; things have a way of working out in the end, right? What, what would you say to somebody who's in that state of flux, in that state of transition? Would you say, hey, man, it's going to be all right. It'll work itself out. What would you say?
1: Yeah, well, coming back to you know, my old chief flying instructor, one of the phrases that he used to use that really stuck me with me was that very little really matters in the long run. And I guess how I've interpreted that is that, yeah, it, things will always get better. And the way I've approached that is that I've always taken the long view And there were times between Qantas and starting medical school where I was in a pretty low place. And there were definitely times at medical school where I was in a really low place where I just had no life. I was just studying every bit of spare time and I had no time for my family. And the highlight of my day was standing and looking out the dining room window here where I'm sitting now and watching, just taking a 30-minute pause to look at the sunset uh, before I closed the blinds and kept going with the evening routine. And I knew when I started that medicine was going to be a you know a ten year project at, at least to get to somewhere that I was happy with, and similarly with my flying, you know, I knew that when I lost my medical that I would be able to get a class two medical back eventually, but that that would be a you know a long term project requiring me to understand and have good control of my diabetes. And mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I got there, and uh, you know, and the next long term project is. I'm working on a project to try and get a class one medical back again. And I'm just approaching it with the same mindset. You know, I'm just, I'm just chipping away at it. And if I get there, excellent. If I don't, you know, I'm, I'm learning a lot on the way and I'm, I'm involving myself in other things that keep me happy on the way.
0: Oh, that's so a, really know, taking really the long Nice, nice. Well, what's happening for you, Jeremy, in the next eighteen months? Are you going into a specialty? Going to keep doing more of what you're doing? Where's where it going for you?
1: So I I will continue working in the hospital system until the end of next year, and then I've, I've I'm interested in two different specialties. One is general practice. I really enjoyed my time as a rural general practice student, and just the you know the diversity of Medical presentations you see and uh, the ability to become involved in a community in the way that country GPs do. Nice. That, that fascinates me. Uh, so there's the option to, to do further GP training, but also given my background, um, aviation and aerospace medicine is a real interest of mine. And that is available as a specialty program in Australia now as well. So at the end of next year, I need to decide which pathway to follow or yeah, maybe I could do both one after the other or maybe you know one part time around the other but professionally that's that's going to be the core of where I'm heading as a doctor and then from an aviation point of view um, I'll certainly be continuing to fly myself out to Tamora and Cowra. Uh I'd like to continue the jump flying because it's just such wonderful fun um, I may have to s- yeah, pull back a little bit on the instructing because I'm kind of running out of spare time at the moment. Mm-hmm. But I know that that will always be there and uh, it's something that I enjoy. So I'll always go back to it when I do have the spare time. Nice. And, I, I uh,
0: wanted to ask a quick question to a yeah. pilot because I never I never got a chance to ask this when I was in the military because the RAF guys just kind of do their RAF thing. But, you know, I, I've been up at altitude, you know, 14,000, 15,000 feet before and I've never come back on the ground in the plane because I've always jumped out of the plane. Must be tempting to roll that thing inverted and pull pretty hard,
1: right? <laughs> Maybe, but you've got to remember that. I mean, the airplane I'm flying is Cessna Caravan. It's got, <laughs> you yeah, know, it's designed to be an enclosed fuselage airplane <laughs> and it's had the cargo door removed. So it actually has an airspeed limitation on it. The normal VNE for the Caravan is 175 knots with the jump door. Installed and open because of course they leave it open when they, when the last person hops out. That's right. The V&E is 155 knots. So, and it's not certified for aerobatics. So I don't, <laughs> I'm, I'm fairly cautious with the, the speed that I use on descent, but you know, there's more than enough fun to be had, not rolling it on its back, but at least rolling it on its side and starting a, a steep turn spiral descent back down to the drop zone. Yeah,
0: nice. How long does it take you to get back from 14,000 feet? Uh, three Probably
1: or four minutes. It's pretty fast, eh? Mm. Yeah, mm. you can wind up a good rate of descent if in a you know, descending steep turn. 4,000 feet a minute is kind of pretty normal.
0: That's enough to pop your ears out, right? If You've got a little uh, head cold.
1: Yeah, yeah. No no jump flying with a head cold. Definitely not. Absolutely.
0: Nice. And what about jumping? They take you out for a tandem a couple of times?
1: Yeah, I've been thrown out the back once. Uh, They took great pleasure in doing that. Um, (laughs) Normally, I'm quite happy flying the aeroplane, but I would like to do my accelerated freefall at some point. It's kind of been on the list of things to do for a while. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know, wait until the kids are a bit bigger probably before I go and do that.
0: um, I, I loved how you described before of sitting in a flight deck and looking out the window and like the romantic notion of aviation and just the environment. That's incredible. And one of my favorite things about parachuting is climbing out of an, maybe the people like that don't like skydiving. I think this is a bit weird, right? But climbing out of an airplane and waiting for your mate uh, to climb out as well. You just got a, a couple of seconds there where you're holding on to the outside of the plane. And if you look up when you're at altitude, you know, 14, 13, 14,000 feet, when you look up, the sky is so blue. On a, on a clear day and that's as you would know, you know, being at altitude, but when you look up and you're outside the plane and that's the bluest the sky is ever going to be that you see because there's no dust, there's no any environmentals mm-hmm. there and it's kind of yeah. like, wow, and then you kind of mate, poaching the ribs, ready, set, go and let go and then just keep looking up at that blue sky as you let go. That's really you know, the hand of God touching you, that type of stuff. That's one of my favorite (laughs) things to do. I really remember that. So do your accelerated free fall course and you get to experience that as well. It's really
1: cool. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, Jeremy, you're a, you're a busy operator, mate. There's a lot going on for you with work, family and everything like that. Can you tell us what some of your daily non-negotiables are to keep yourself sharp and focused?
1: Sleep for me. I really try and make sure that I get seven to eight hours sleep every night. And that's, Along with all those other things you mentioned, that really improves the stability of my diabetes. So and that, yeah, then affects everything else in my life. So if I'm well rested, then yes, I'm a happy person to be around, but also my diabetes is under better control. So yeah, a good night's sleep and a a good I guess a good routine for sleep, trying to get to sleep at the same time, roughly the same time each night.
0: Do you have trouble on shift work?
1: Yeah. The um yeah night shifts obviously are a complete nightmare from a sleep wake cycle point of view. The evening shifts aren't too bad, you know I'm home in bed by one o'clock, so that's only a few hours after my normal sleep time, but uh, of course the kids still wake up at their normal time so if I'm on a string of evening shifts, yeah I do slowly get further and further behind in my sleep, but then I just you know work hard a few nights after that to make sure I get a few good nights sleep and I'm back to normal pretty quickly
0: nice well that's a that's a daily non-negotiable that we could all benefit from is a better more deliberate night's sleep i think as well you know um it's easy just to stay up late and get up early and after a little while that kind of catches up with you Um, and especially in a job like yours you can't afford that to happen to you
1: yeah that's right the the temptation to sit there and you know scroll through stuff on my iphone till the small hours is very tempting but yeah i work hard to turn that thing off and just go to sleep yeah that's it
0: good one good one well mate well if people want to connect with you where can they uh where, where can they reach out
1: um So I guess in a professional sense, LinkedIn is great. I'm on LinkedIn uh, more than happy to meet people and talk to people there. So it's just, you know, my name, Jeremy Robertson. And uh, I think I'm the only pilot slash doctor with my name. So you should be able to find me. If people like looking at photos of airplanes, I run a little Instagram account, which has uh, just photos of me going flying. And that's just type one pilot at Instagram and uh, my website for my little uh, aviation medicine business is just aeromed.net.au and um, people can get in touch through that as well.
0: Awesome. Well, I'll make sure all of those links are included in the show notes. Well, that just about wraps it up for the Goal In podcast today. If you like what you heard, make sure you pop open your favorite podcasting app and look for the Goal In podcast and hit that subscribe button. And if you could leave us a review, that always helps out a boatload as well. Well, that's it for this show. Thanks, Jeremy, for coming on, mate, and sharing your story. Really appreciate it, mate. Look forward to speaking with you soon. Bye for now, mate.
1: Thanks, Robert. The- Bye-bye.